Hello, and welcome to the very first episode of the Much Language Such Talk podcast. Today, you'll be hearing from me, Kareen, and another Bilingualism Matters volunteer, Jessica, who is a PhD student in psychology. To kick off the podcast, today we're joined by the founder and the director of Bilingualism Matters, Professor Antonella Sorace. Antonella is a professor in developmental linguistics and conducts research on bilingualism with various age groups, cognitive aspects of bilingualism, such as aging and bilingualism, and interactions between languages. We're extremely excited to ask her a ton of questions to help us understand what bilingualism is, what it means to be bilingual, and why there was and is a need for a research center focused on these questions. So welcome, Antonella. Hello. Hi. Hi. How are you? I'm very well. How are you? Doing really good, actually. We had a nice, beautiful day, didn't we? Yes. Yeah. We're also here joined today with Jessica. Jessica, please say hi. Hi. Hello. How are you doing? Good, good. Yeah. So shall we just jump right in? Are we ready? Yes. All right. Let's do this. So, of course, I think it's a pretty important question to ask, but how did you develop an interest in studying bilingualism and did you grow up bilingual yourself? I'm actually Italian. I I was born and raised in Italy and I grew up as a passive bilingual because Italian was obviously my main language, but my mother was a native speaker of Sardinian. And although she never spoke it Sardinian to me, Mm -hmm. she spoke it with other relatives. And so I heard enough Sardinian spoken around me to develop passive competence in Sardinian. So she never directed Sardinian at you at all? No, no, she didn't. That's really interesting. And Sardinia is only spoken on Sardinia, In Sardinia, which is an island, yeah, the second largest island in the Mediterranean. Oh, wow. Yeah, we have our own language. It's it's really amazing when you uh, start, especially I think Italy is one of those ones that has such an interesting and diverse uh, regional dialects as well. That's right. The fact that the islands also are quite different is... But uh, Sardinian is a language. It's not uh, a yeah, dialect. No, yes. no, it's not a dialect. But we can come back to the distinction between dialects and languages, <laughs> you know, because that's very interesting. It's a whole question of its own. That's true. Yes. So is this where you um, developed your interest in studying bilingualism as, as well, research? Well, actually, when I was a, a, a child, I wasn't really aware of the fact that, you know, Sardinian mm-hmm. was another language and so on. Um, I became interested in my own experience of learning English, mm-hmm. uh, which didn't start until my, my teenage years. Mm-hmm. And then uh, and then I became interested in how I was learning English and how my English was improving. And then I uh, at the university, I wrote uh, a thesis on bilingualism, you know, but uh, basically my own experience was the, the starting point. Mm-hmm. And it's only later that I, I, I understood that, yes, I mean, I was actually passive bilingual with Sardinian without realizing it. It's amazing, yeah, just the environment you're in. Cool, interesting. Um, So also we're wondering, how did you come up with the idea to set up a research and information center on bilingualism? The idea came from the fact that I became very aware that people know very little about bilingualism. Um, There are lots of misconceptions, there are lots of prejudices, and at that time, so in the mid, um, so around uh, 2007, 2006 and uh, 2007, I had uh, school-aged children. And so I was really aware of how little teachers knew, for example, about bilingualism, Mm. how little other parents and other families knew about bilingualism. So I thought, well, here we are. We are researchers. We work on precisely on this topic. 
And I think we have some responsibility to make sure that our research gets out of the ivory tower yeah. and, and, reaches, <laughs> yes, and reaches people who have to make decisions about bilingualism all the time. Yeah. And very often they make decisions based on misconceptions and prejudices and so on. So I thought, well, maybe we have some responsibility. And that's where the decision to start Bilingualism Matters came. So in 2008, we launched Bilingualism Matters as a local service for Edinburgh parents and teachers. Yes. <laughs> and uh, was there anything before Bilingualism Matters? No, there was nothing. There was nothing. Okay. There weren't any other kinds of information centers, not no, at all. No, so, not Is at that all. just Edinburgh or is that worldwide? Well, you know, there, there are lots of people now, particularly now, I mean, not so much then, I think, you know, but people who give free advice on bilingualism, <laughs> yeah. you know, I mean, based on their experience mm -hmm. and so on. But there was no center based on research. Oh, wow. Wow. So you're the first one to set this up I in Edinburgh. Believe I think so. this is I really, believe so. really important. And I agree with you that we have the responsibility. Um, we we're also curious to know how you decided on the name bilingualism matters. Why not multilingualism? Well, actually, <laughs> in a sense, I regret that we didn't call it multilingualism matters because <laughs> every every <laughs> time, every time we have to explain that uh, what we mean by bilingualism is more than one language, and yeah. that applies equally well to trilingualism, quadrilingualism, or you know, however many mm -hmm. languages you want to put in the picture. Um, uh, so at that time, you know, we uh, we didn't think of that, and I, well, I thought, okay, bilingualism matters, you know, is uh, is yeah. what uh, what we decided. But um, but then we, we we became aware that for some people, in fact, for many people, bilingualism means two languages yeah. uh, only, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so we we have to we have to explain that bilingualism for us has a very broad meaning, and it means more than one. Yeah. Yeah, I think also um, more people understand, maybe identify with the name bilingual over the word bi uh, multilingual, yeah. just because w there's always in the question of like, how, when can you call yourself bilingual? When you can you call yourself multilingual? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> I think it's something we all kind of struggle with with a little bit. Like I, I consider myself to be bilingual. I kind of speak three languages. <laughs> so, but yeah. Also, the, the, there was another factor. There is a, a, a publisher called Multilingualism Matters. Ah, yes. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's <me> unique. <laughs> That's a bit more so we didn't want to confuse that, people's ideas. Name. Yeah. yeah. So what were your original goals for Bilingualism Matters? Like, what was the main outset other than, you know, helping with misinformation? Was there, like, something specific other than that, or was it? Well, as I said, you know, our scope was fairly narrow at the, be at the beginning. Uh, we, we thought, um, well, first of all, uh, by we, <laughs> I mean myself and many volunteers. Uh, without volunteers, I want to say this very clearly, and thank you for you guys, you know, to everybody around me. Without volunteers, we wouldn't be where we are. And at the beginning, um, it was just volunteers and me and myself. <laughs> <laughs> so our scope was fairly limited. We thought, okay, teachers, parents and teachers in Edinburgh, because as I said, you know, my own experience as a parent, uh, you know, was very salient, you know, in this context. And so uh, we thought, okay, we'll write to all schools in the Edinburgh area. We sent them a letter and I believe an email as well, but, uh, you know, certainly a hard copy of a letter <laughs> and we said uh, here we are we exist and uh, if you if you would like a talk 
you know, we can come and give you a talk. And then people started responding. Not everybody, you know, a small number at the beginning. And then, and then you know, uh, slowly, slowly, slowly uh, you know, we, we, we started becoming uh, better known. Uh, so the aim was to communicate uh, to parents and teachers, that's what that was the original aim mm -hmm. to communicate what bilingualism is and why uh, it's a good thing and why it doesn't cause confusion and why if you are a, a family who comes from another language background, it's a good idea to keep speaking your, your mother tongue rather than switching into English. So there were many, many uh, uh, aspects of bilingualism, you know, having to do with uh, parents and teachers that uh, we, we, uh, we wanted to um, uh, base ourselves, well, our work on at, at the beginning. And then we started attracting attracting attention from other sectors. Yeah. So how did like because it things have changed a lot over like the last ten years. So yes. like how have the goals changed? What are we really focusing on now? Well, uh, first of all, yes. I mean, we we um, we communicate and we work with a much wider range of people and sectors of society. So we started collaborating with uh, policymakers, for example, uh, Scottish government, for example, or local education authorities, um, health professionals, Ooh. so people who give advice about uh, language, languages or language skills in children, um, so speech and language therapists and uh, pediatricians and so on and so forth. Um, and then uh, more recently, businesses as well. So uh, our uh, the range of uh, sectors of society that we interacted with um, definitely expanded. Um, and also we started expanding uh, geographically as well. So we started attracting attention from universities and researchers in other countries. Mm -hmm. uh, and we had the idea of uh, having branches of bilingualism matters in other countries. Um, and so we started having building our international network. And so from being a local information service for parents and teachers in Edinburgh, we became a research and information center. So based on research, not just our own research, obviously, because nobody is an expert of everything. Yeah. It'd so, be nice if we were. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> well, I'm not sure it would be. <laughs> I, th I think working with other people is one of the best aspects of being an academic. Mm, definitely. And, yes. uh, yeah. and it should be recognized more. So interdisciplinarity, working across disciplinary boundaries, that is what we need. Mm -hmm. And that's definitely what we need for public engagement in this field as well as in, in other fields. So, yes, uh, uh, having a research and information center means uh, being able to base our advice on research, not just our own, but also other people's research, collaborative research that we do with other people. Um, and, uh, and make sure that people uh, make informed decisions. Yeah, I think uh, informed decisions is something that we can all always just do a little bit more with these days. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned also that at the start it was um, just you and a few volunteers. How was it at the start for you to run it on your own? And how do you feel that it changed um, in 2014? Well, uh <laughs> It was interesting <laughs> because uh, at the beginning it was uh, obviously a lot more work 
for myself as an academic, um, in addition to everything that an academic is expected to do, so teaching, doing research, supervising students, doing administration, and all the duties that an yeah. academic is supposed to, um, to have. Um, so at the beginning, I think there wasn't much awareness of the fact that doing this kind of large-scale public engagement takes time. And uh, it really adds, you know, uh, to uh, to your work in a in a in a very very conspicuous way. Uh, so I think it it took a little bit of time to uh, to persuade uh, the university that uh, this was in fact uh, something big, something important, and something to be taken seriously. Yeah, I think. Uh... I would say that over the last like five years, especially knowledge exchange has become much more prominent on university campuses. Even when I was an undergraduate, that was not <laughs> not that long, but it feels like also 700 years ago at the same time. <laughs> but like knowledge exchange wasn't the big thing. It was exchanging information within the university across universities, but not as much with the general public. So like I would say, yeah, over the last five years, especially it's becoming a lot more like prominent that the general public should definitely have. Um, an understanding and more of a say kind of there definitely should be part of the engagement of academic research because um, it is everyone should know what's going on i think it's really important so in 2014 we we, we became a center mm -hmm. and uh, i was allowed to hire uh support staff for the center for the first time Ooh. yeah <laughs> <laughs> and that was really a major change but again, you know, without the volunteers, the many volunteers that we had at every single point of this uh, trajectory, we wouldn't be where we are. I mean, you know, it wouldn't be, it, it wouldn't work if it was just me and the two people working in my team. And I think, you know, it, it one of one of the uh, I think one of the aspects that we developed over time is also training students, training students and also other academics to communicate clearly. Yes. What they want to communicate to different kinds of people. Mm -hmm. I think this is something that is not really appreciated very much, but it's very, very important. Being able to communicate what you're doing, for example, in research in, a, in clear terms, in terms that everybody, uh, that, that everybody can understand. Uh, I think, you know, that is one of the aspects that we, uh, we develop and, uh, and we're still developing. Uh, and I think this is one of the advantages of getting involved with Bilingualism Matters. Oh, definitely, yes. I, I would definitely agree with that. Since 2011, the Bilingualism Matters Network has really began to grow. Um, so how did, we kind of touched upon this a little bit, but how did the idea of branches come about? Was it just that academics were coming to, uh, to approach you? Um, was it that, like you had somehow, not necessarily that you had friends in other places, but was it that people had seen you speak and had seen the research that you were doing and they had become interested in it and wanted to collaborate? Um, so what, how did that trajectory happen? I think it's mostly, uh, in fact, uh, all our branches actually uh, got in touch with us, you know, expressing interest. So we, uh, it's not that we actively chased <laughs> people uh, in in all cases it's uh, it's uh, a group of academics uh, in particular universities in many cases obviously uh, I knew them personally but not in all cases and they became interested in, in the idea of having a center 
uh, for public engagement mm -hmm. and having a center that specifically focuses on communicating research to the general public. Uh, because that was, um, and still is, a fairly original idea. And so uh, they wanted to join in uh, as a branch. And uh, so we started developing relationships with uh, particular universities, you know, opening branches in different countries. Mm -hmm. um, Speaking and, of different countries, yes. and how many different countries and how many branches are there right now? At the moment, there are 26 branches, including us. <laughs> and uh, in, uh, well, how many countries? Well, certainly three continents. <laughs> Wow. I think more than 20 countries. Because there are some countries that do have more than one branch. That is yes, correct, right? yes, definitely, yeah. definitely, <laughs> including the UK. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and you also mentioned before the, um, the importance of uh, communicating uh, clearly, so clear communication about bilingualism and bringing that to the community. Um, so you give a lot of talks to different types of audiences, and um, we're also curious to know what your experience is there. How is it, what's it like for you to give um, talks to so many different types of audiences, such a range of different types of audiences? I, at this point, I think it's fair to say that I've have given several hundreds of talks, uh, possibly wow. close to a thousand. Wow. Or, or, you know, it's just unbelievable. <laughs> We've seen your calendar, every, it's quite busy. Every, <laughs> but um, every time I feel excited about, about talking to people, even if, uh, you know, in, 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 to some extent, you know, uh, talks tend to be similar. I mean, talks to particular uh, uh, sectors of society tend, tend to be similar, but not identical. And I, I think, again, you know, I think it's, um, um, I feel very happy when I see that the message gets through. Yeah. And uh, I learned the hard way you know, because nobody trained me <laughs> to communicate, you know, to... Uh, We're the lucky uh, to the ones. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, I think, uh, you know, learning to, to communicate, uh, for example, you know, to people at very different levels of education with very different levels of English, for example, mm. yeah. um, is a very useful experience because you, you have to be able to... It has to be clear in your mind what you want to communicate, what the main message is, uh, among the many, many different details that, that we're familiar with as researchers. So what are the important details for this particular audience? Mm. And you have to be able to say, yes, this is number one, and this is number two. And if I have time, I'll talk about number three. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, I won't. Okay. And I think it's very, very important and, and very useful. And um, do you also do you have a preference for giving um, talks to, for example, I don't know, schools or a community or also maybe giving lectures to uh, student linguistic students at the university? Do you have a preference? I love I love talking to people. Yeah, so. <laughs> everything. Okay. I don't I don't have any preferences, okay. but I want to be clear that the two uh, feed each other. I mean, and this is what you know yeah. I was talking about. So if you're an academic and you also know how to talk to non-academics, mm. your research gets better and your communication skills get mm. better, yeah. no matter what you're who you're talking to. Yeah, I. I Everyone says that this quote is by Einstein, but as I think I've heard somewhere else on yeah. the internet that Einstein is one of the most misquoted people in the world. <laughs> uh, it's If you can't explain your research to a four-year-old or to a child, yeah. then you don't understand your research your own. So I yeah. think it's also, it's not just important for the general audience, but it's important for us as academics 
because then it becomes clearer to us what yes. we're actually doing. Absolutely. It's also nice to, you know, hear people say nice things about your research mm-hmm, as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, another thing that uh, I think we are all learning is how to um, deal with the new kind of prejudices and misconceptions about bilingualism. We're at a a lucky time when we're dealing with the old misconceptions, Mm -hmm. but also some new misconceptions that come out of a misreading of research. And, uh, you know, so, you know, on the one hand, you you still have people who think that bilingualism is confusing and, you know, for a young child. On the other hand, you have people who think that bilingualism makes children more intelligent. Mm -hmm. Mm. I think my favorite, I saw a BBC (laughs) article that was just like, we have discovered the fountain of youth. And then you read the article and it's just like, we didn't read the paper. (laughs) And I was like, well, that that could help. But yeah. Um, But speaking of misconceptions, it's a perfect segue. Um, so there are a lot of misconceptions about bilingualism. And as you've said, they, a lot of them are, uh, they've been around for quite a long time. And research has, I guess, disproven many of them or at least, or other ones kind of given weight to them. Um, so can you tell us a bit about the most common myths that you hear about? Well, uh, I think there are there are myths about uh, child bilingualism. So again, you know, two languages too soon uh, may may be confusing for a child. It might mean that a child doesn't really learn to um, speak any language properly. Um, uh, there are myths about uh, adult bilingualism as well. Um, so uh, you can't learn a language well after a certain age. Mm. Um, so uh, and we know that that's not that's not true. Uh, there are myths about uh, ter- certain kinds of bilingualism. So bilingualism with minority languages mm-hmm. that's not very useful. So why bother? Uh, it's always much better to invest in important languages or prestigious languages, oh, but not. <laughs> Exactly. Uh, So our message is that bilingualism in any languages is good. It's good for the brain. It's good for society. It's good for relationships. It's good because it opens the mind, no matter whether, you know, how prestigious the language is. And so Mm. all kinds of bilingualism need to be encouraged. Yeah. (laughs) And what is it like uh, to convince people with very strong beliefs about the benefits of bilingualism? Is it even possible or how how do you feel well uh, i mean i think we have to distinguish between immediate feedback after a talk you know and usually people are very happy or they may be very surprised about what they've heard and happy to hear that yeah another thing is um long-term changes Mm -hmm. and of course you know we we all want to contribute to long-term changes uh, but but the name suggests you know long-term changes take time and so we can't see the results immediately but that shouldn't discourage us because you know we we have to continue and we have to continue we have to collaborate you know with more people to make sure that in the long term we we start seeing some results mm-hmm. in some cases we are seeing some results but in other cases we we can just hope for the best because we yeah these changes take time yeah point. Yeah. yeah it'd be nice if some changes could happen overnight but <laughs> we do need to be yeah. a little bit more well, patient um you're talking about changing people's attitudes attitude, yeah. so yes it's hard to do i mean it's hard to remind myself to like have less than two cups of coffee a day so <laughs> i can't imagine yeah just trying to get people to understand things about like language and yeah. science and all those things as well um but what is the weirdest question you've ever been asked by someone? Um, well, uh, I can think of 
uh, a person in Sardinia who asked me, um, well, I can see that, you know, you think that we, we should value Sardinian and bilingualism with Sardinian, but Sardinian is really ugly, isn't oh. it? Uh, the, the language. Oh, <laughs> is there anything we can do about that? And uh, so, <laughs> oh so yes, yes, oh, uh, yes. Boy. I mean, uh, that is uh, part of the many misconceptions. About so, were they asking you if there was a way we can change the language to sound "quote unquote" well, nicer? Uh, well, <laughs> you know, it's uh, it it doesn't sound nice. It sounds ugly, and so. So, uh, oh I mean, that, that says it all. That says it uh, all. Yeah, that is yes. true. Yeah. Yes. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you, um, on the other hand, do you also have any um, heartwarming or touching stories that you'd like to share with us? Well, I can tell you that uh, it happened several times to me that uh, after I talk to migrant families, newly arrived migrant families, uh, people with very little English, uh, many interpreters there, one message at the time, as I said, point number one, two, Mm -hmm. maybe three. I had people cry. Oh, Oh, wow. In tears because they said, nobody ever said that to us about the value of our language. Oh, that's that's really, that is really moving. that? That is really moving. Yeah, I think uh, our languages are really important to us. They're a huge part of identities. I can imagine, yeah, especially having to, if if you were either forced to leave your home or just having to leave and going to a new community, like having someone reinforce that idea that this is so important. This is so important and you should keep speaking it because you're giving a gift to your child. That's fantastic. Mm. Overall, how would you say that views on bilingualism have changed? Like, have we progressed or are we still in the same place kind of? As I said, you know, I think I think in many ways, you know, we are progressing. Uh, uh, attitudes are changing a bit. You know, I can see at the level of um, uh, language learning in schools, for example, uh, and uh, atti- general attitudes of people towards language learning. Although we uh, we can't uh forget that uh bilingualism can be very political as well mm, yes and so for example in the current political climate we know that uh language learning interest in language learning is going down uh in certain areas of the country is and, it specifically scotland uh it's not specifically scotland uh it's uh more in england uh in other areas of the country but we have to be vigilant uh, because uh, obviously, uh, I mean, again, this is a contribution that we can give. You know, we can't change things magically, mm-hmm. uh, but particularly at difficult political times like the one that we're living, I think our contribution is important. So persuading people that, yes, I mean, learning other languages is still very important. If anything, it's more important than before because it really keeps us in touch with people. It allows us to understand, you know, where where people come from. Mm-hmm. It allows us to, to understand people's ideas and proposals. And that's so important, Definitely, especially yes. at the time where, right now when, yeah, uh, boundaries are going up again. Yeah. I think a lot of people also use the excuse that um, we all speak English. 
so why don't we just speak English? But there really is something about learning well, someone else's language. Well, that has always been a problem in the so-called Anglosphere, which mm-hmm. includes not only this country, obviously, but other English-speaking countries. Mm-hmm. And uh, and uh, so the p- people's perception that everybody speaks English, which is not even true, yeah. but it's true <laughs> that English is the most studied language um, uh, in the world. And so people don't see the importance, partly because they only see the instrumental value of bilingualism. Mm-hmm. So they say, well, you know, everybody speaks English. Why should we bother to learn English other for languages? Big, for business, I don't need it for anything else. Well, exactly. Yeah. But if they understand that learning a language is actually much more than having an instrument that allows you to do business with uh, with another country uh, and it really it really is an investment for individuals for societies then that should be a, a very strong argument yeah i totally uh, agree i agree the, i agree that's what we are we are contributing to yeah so those are the questions we've prepared from ourselves but we've actually also gathered a couple of questions from our public Okay. Um, so the first one we have, um, um, the first question that we have um, is saying that you've raised both of your kids bilingually. So what was your experience with that, as especially growing up in an area where many children are raised, quote unquote, monolingual? Well, we, um, I'm lucky enough to have a husband who is a polyglot. So he's very uh, aware of the importance of multilingualism and he speaks Italian very well. Uh, So we did everything we could to reinforce Italian as a minority language. And uh, we were successful. Um, Obviously, uh, our sons reached the point where English became the dominant language, Mm -hmm. but but that, that is completely predictable. Um, but they're still speaking Italian to me. So Italian is very well rooted and they learned many other languages uh, because that, that is one of the advantages of bilingualism, right? Yeah. You, you find it easier to learn other languages. Mm-hmm. Do you um, speak only English and Italian at home or? Uh, yeah, we, we spoke English and Italian, yes. Mm-hmm. And yeah. your kids have learned what other languages? Oh, uh, well, my younger son learned uh, Spanish, Portuguese, Russian, uh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> My older languages. son learned uh, German, French. Yeah. Yes. Oh, man. <laughs> that's, that's fantastic. Wow. Mm. So the second question that we got from the public is, um, can parents raise kids bilingually even if they're speaking not in their mother tongue? And uh, does this have an effect on children's language proficiency? This is becoming more and more common. It's one of the most frequent questions that we, that we get asked. Um, and the short answer is yes. Uh, what we say to, uh, to these parents is, if you feel comfortable enough to speak another language, why not? I mean, the most important thing is communication with your child, obviously, right? Yes. It's not teaching a language to yeah. your child. It has to be fluent and easy communication. Mm-hmm. If you feel comfortable enough to do that in another language, why not? Um, and then the next question is, you know, from parents, uh, but will my child acquire my mistakes, mm-hmm. non-native accent, you know, mispronunciations and so on? And the answer to that is uh, that your child won't do that if they hear the language not only from you, Mm. but from other people as well. So hearing the language spoken in different ways from different people is very important, both for monolingual acquisition. So a child who, you know, hears the language spoken by many people, of course, Mm -hmm. but also for bilingual acquisition. And so uh, a child who hears the language spoken by different speakers uh, doesn't automatically uh, acquire all the characteristics of individual speakers, mm-hmm. but is able to regularize. And so 
uh, there's no danger of that. So there is there um, is there the debate of quality over quantity then? Is it just quantity at that point? Just getting as much input as possible? No, I think both quantity and quality are, are important. I mm -hmm. mean, by quality, as I mean, you know, uh, not just from one person, but for more than one, more, more than one, yeah, okay. uh, a, a mini community, if you want. If there isn't a, a community already, forming a mini community is, is important. And hearing the language, you know, from children, for example, or from people different people because that gives the child the awareness that this is not just the special language that I speak with mommy or daddy mm -hmm. that's a language that is used by many people that's mm. a language that you can say anything in exactly like what whatever the other language is mm -hmm. the, the yeah. majority language I think that's the my favorite story that uh, you've told me was that you were in Italy once with one of your sons and you were at a playground it was like he recognized everyone was speaking Italian around him he was like mom they speak yes. Italian too <laughs> yes yes yeah that's oh. right that, that was it wow. I think a turning point yeah. in his perception you know he, he realized yes wow yeah everybody speaks Italian here <laughs> yeah what a surprise <laughs> yeah. for him you know it was a sudden realization and I think it, it raised the status of Italian in his mind <laughs> yeah. yeah it's also recognizing Italian yeah. as this is this is how it's I can real. communicate with other, with friends in the playground. Yes, yeah. yeah. It's like exactly yeah. like English, you know, you can say anything yeah. and lots of people use it. Yeah. People will understand you. It's amazing. Yeah. All right. So what would you say is your best piece of advice that you would give to parents who are planning on raising their kids bilingually? That's a very, very difficult question. Because, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yes. We're I mean, here for yeah. the hard-hitting question. <laughs> um... For parents, uh, the, the, you, you, you want the, the most important uh, advice to parents? Yeah. Um, value the languages that you speak. Uh, make sure that, you know, you, uh, you communicate the value of your languages to your children. Mm. Um, be enthusiastic about your languages. Yeah. Uh, try to transmit a positive message. Uh, yeah, but... That's the, that's the most important message for parents, I think. Such an easy job. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh man, yeah, no, that that's a very good point. Yeah, you have to enjoy it as well. Yeah, yeah that's really important. Um, so, is there a point? Um, we have another question. Sorry. Um, so, yeah, our next question is: Is there a point where it gets too chaotic to learn a new language, and is there mess possibly too many languages? So, is how many is too many languages? Well, I think uh, the the answer to that question is, um, as we said, a child needs to hear each language enough. Mm -hmm. So there is a quantity problem as well as a quality, right? I mean, mm -hmm. as we said before, but uh, the more languages you put in the equation, the more meaning the more languages you put in the uh, you know child's uh, day, mm -hmm. <laughs> the less time they spend for each of them. Mm, good point. Yeah. And so, yeah, okay. uh, so it's not so much that the brain can't cope with many languages. It's the fact that, you know, if a language is not heard enough, if there aren't enough opportunities to hear and use that language, then that language uh, can't be acquired, uh, you know, fully. Mm, so point, yes. that means that if there are three languages, for example, it's often the case that two languages are ahead compared to the third mm -hmm. but then if the situation changes and the third becomes dominant for some reason or even during holidays or whatever mm -hmm. then the relative competence and proficiency changes so i think you know parents need to be realistic mm -hmm. 
the same applies to other you know uh, areas of society um, so teachers for example mm-hmm. um, it's very nice to have the idea that uh, you know children can learn a language at school but they need to hear it yes mm-hmm. there are some schools and, you have one hour a week well most yes. most yeah. schools actually yeah. you have one hour a week really yes and so uh, so the question that's is not, you know that's not a lot, enough yeah So it's a, it's a problem. The problem is creating more opportunities and creating more exposure for mm-hmm. a child. It doesn't have to be all in the classroom, but there have to be other ways. And we're exercises. working with teachers and schools and, um, and uh, yeah, policymakers mm-hmm. to make sure mm-hmm. that, that that message Yeah. gets across is this is it the same for adult learners is it the same kind of like is there a point at well we've said that you know we can acquire languages throughout yes. our lives but is there a point where like can you hit too many languages as an adult can that happen again uh, it's a matter of time right mm-hmm. i mean first of all adults have typically less time than a child and so uh right i mean they have uh also other ways of learning languages that might yeah you know they can make use of shortcuts for example you know they can study the structure of the language they can understand metalinguistic explanations but typically they don't have a lot of time to spend on languages so So is there a limit to the number of languages that somebody can learn? I mean, as we know, there are people who know many, many languages. Mm-hmm. Keeping all of them to the same level, that is difficult That's, because yeah. it means, you know, speaking all of them and yeah. that is clearly, clearly difficult. But again, you know, we should encourage more and more adults to learn languages Uh, without age limits, really, because mm-hmm. uh, uh, even when you, if you are an older adult, is it's important to learn other languages um, because the brain responds very well to the challenge of learning a new language. Yeah, I think that's uh, something that I've uh, experienced quite a bit when people learn that I do language research. They're just like, oh, I'm too old. I just I just can't learn a oh, new yes. language. And I'm just like, oh, what? Oh, okay. I, I that's not true at all. But and then you try to convince them, and then they're just there's that little pushback, and they're it's just like, okay, well, if it's a question of motivation, that's a whole yeah. other story. If you don't But want to sit down and spend the time to learn the language, that's one thing. But you you're definitely capable of doing it as long as you put the effort in. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, and there are languages that are easier than others. You know, when you're an adult, depending on the languages you already know. Uh, I speak on experience because I'm learning Chinese at the moment mm-hmm. and I can tell you it's more challenging than the other languages I've learned. <laughs> uh, what's most challenging about Chinese? Would you say? Well, that, that I can't use any of the languages I know as a point yeah. of reference, yeah. as an obvious point of yeah. reference. I mean, of course, you know, all languages have a share, you know, something in common, but, um, but mm-hmm. everything... Everything I'm learning is fairly new. Yes. So good challenge. Very, very good challenge okay. for the brain. <laughs> yeah, that was a, one of the questions that we got. It was asking if it's, is it easier to learn some languages than others? Yeah. Uh, for an adult or for a child? For well, either. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, so for a young child, you know, there are no difficult languages. Mm-hmm. We know that, right? I mean, a young child, we're talking about spoken languages. Uh, there's no reason to think that, you know, a language is more difficult than another. For an adult, uh, however, I mean, yes, I mean, typologically e- similar languages tend to be easier than distant languages, mm-hmm. uh, but it doesn't mean that uh, some languages are impossible to learn. Mm-hmm. They just require, you know, a bit of more effort mm-hmm. and, uh, and uh, uh, yeah, commitment, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, okay. 
Well, also, um, other than, so we spoke a little bit about contact time with uh, the language and creating opportunities to engage with that language. Um, are there any other factors that play a role in la language learning and are there ways to make it easier other than those? Um, well, uh, I, I think factors that we, we don't often consider um, enough uh, are, for example, attitudes and you know yeah. we go back to we yeah. go back to the beginning yeah. so yeah. uh you know people talk about the benefits of bilingualism for example and the fact that you know these benefits are found in some cases but not in others so why are uh, why are they not found in all cases yeah. mm -hmm. so let's try for example to see if general attitudes play a role mm -hmm. so a child who's surrounded by negative attitudes mm -hmm. about one of their languages Uh, should we be surprised if they don't learn them or mm. if we don't see the benefits of, of bilingualism in those languages? Yeah. I told you, you know, the idea that Sardinian is ugly. Mm -hmm. I mean, if a child hears that, you yeah. know, how can we expect him to... Yeah, you get self-conscious. Yeah. yeah, exactly. They don't enjoy becoming bilingual. They don't enjoy yeah. speaking those languages and so on. So, yeah. so I think that, you know, there are many different factors that can affect successful bilingualism. And we have to be clear that we don't fully understand how these factors interact with one another as researchers. Yeah. So we need much more research, interdisciplinary research, that shows how these different factors actually mm -hmm. uh, uh, interact with one another. Mm. So we have a long way to go. Yeah. <laughs> more research questions. <laughs> more Absolutely. Research. Um, but yeah, it's interesting. So speaking of um, attitudes, how do you feel compar so comparing Italy to the UK? How do you feel... Um, about what are the attitudes? How do people feel about bilingualism um, in Italy compared to the UK? Well, uh, in Italy, they certainly, everybody thinks that English is very important. Mm. And so English is above everything else. Uh, you know, English it's the language. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. You know, if you learn English, then, then you're fine. And that means English at the expense of any other language. Mm -hmm. uh, that means minority languages, like the ones that we've already mentioned, uh, dialects, you know, remember that a dialect, is, a dialect is a political term more than anything else. Mm -hmm. So the difference between a language and a dialect is a political uh, difference. It's not a cognitive difference. You mm -hmm. know, bilingualism in a dialect is the same as bilingualism in a language. Mm -hmm. um, that so, is interesting. Uh, well, and that's another <laughs> another message that we are, we are trying to uh, to get across. Um, so so yes. So bilingualism with English in Italy, like in many other countries, is regarded as number one. But people don't fully understand that uh, um, bilingualism should be valued regardless of the languages. So so they should distinguish between instrumental value and general mm. linguistic, cognitive, social value. Um, yes. Yeah. So, <laughs> so in yeah. the UK, th the problem is the opposite. Everybody speaks it's English. English yeah. So, <laughs> as we said before, what's the point of learning other languages? If you so, can just go somewhere and they can communicate with them. Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. All right. Well, that's everything we have today. Okay. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for um, all these interesting questions. Yeah. If we uh, get any more, we can definitely post them oh, to Twitter. Yeah. We can have you maybe respond somewhere oh, on the internet. Uh, well, thank you so Always much. Always available. Thank you very thank much. You. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed it and learned some cool things or at least some thought-provoking information from our amazing guest, Professor Antonella Sorace. 
If you would like to learn more about Antonella, her research, and her work, you can find a link to her website and Bilingualism Matters in the episode description. Our next episode will air on October 15th, where we'll be talking about sign languages. Stay tuned, stay healthy, and matane!